Let's take our Bible and let's go to Revelation chapter 2, and we are in this series on turnaround churches. We are looking at the churches of Revelation that Jesus wrote letters to. Uh, the churches are about 40 years into existence, and uh, Jesus steps back and says, let's take a little bit of an assessment as to how well you are doing. And so he wrote to the churches and said, these are things that are going right, these are some things that are wrong, these are some things that are missing, these are some things that are confusing. There are only two churches uh, in the seven, out of the seven churches in which he had nothing uh, you know, not negative to say. In other words, there was just nothing wrong. They were, they were kind of hitting on all cylinders. And so we're just asking the Lord to kind of take a look into our lives individually and our church corporately so that we can say, hey, Lord, if you were to make an assessment of our church, of our lives in the here and now, what would that assessment look like? What would it be? And so um, God's just kind of unveiling some things for us. So we are at the church at Thyatira, and uh, so this is found in chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished, burnished bronze. I know your deeds. Um, he, he's some things that are right. Your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her into, onto a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Now the word children here speaks of those who are following her teachers, the, her teaching. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds and repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not Learn Satan's so-called deep secrets. I will not impose any other burden on you. Only hold to what you have until I come. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule with them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my father, I will also give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." Now, you'll notice that these letters are written to churches, right? These are local bodies of believers um, in various towns that were throughout Asia Minor in that day and time. It was kind of a circular, uh, what, the way that the cities were laid out, it was kind of a circular mailing route. And so Jesus is giving these letters to these churches that were probably circulated among all the churches so they could all you know, partake in reading each other's mail. Um, so I want us to just pause for a moment and kind of get context. This is a very difficult passage, and people read this, and they're thinking, man, God's a baby killer, and man, he's just going to like dash people to pieces. And, and so we have a misconception of really what God's trying to explain here. So if I were to go out on the streets and ask people, when you hear the word church, what is it that comes to your mind? Now, depending on who I'm talking to, let's say this is a person who has no, um, really no affiliation to church, and maybe they've had a bad experience with Christians, and they may say, well, when I think of the word church, I just think of, you know, judgmental, narrow-minded, hypocritical people who just, you know, want their way. 
Or some people may say, well, I just think of a, bur- a building. You know, I, I go to First Baptist Church or I go to this church and, and I, just, I just think about this is where I, the location I go to in order to go to church. Or you may run across someone who's a believer and they say, well, you know, it's where I worship. It's where I go to worship God or it's where I serve God or it's where my friends are. There are a lot of different ways that people will describe church And if I were to press it a little further and say, well, what do you think the role and the responsibility of a local church is? And now all of a sudden it becomes a little more dicey because then you get a wide variety of answers as to, well, what really is the role of a local church and what is the responsibility? And we're living in a day and time where people now, the the fastest growing area of spirituality are the knowns, which means I'm, I'm not affiliated to any church. I'm spiritual, and I believe in God, and I'm trying to walk with God, but I just don't think the local church has any relevance for Christianity today. Fastest growing segment of Christianity right now. And so uh, let's kind of draw back and paint the big picture. We're going to look at the 30,000-foot view so that we understand what Jesus is saying to this church at Thyatira and, and what it is that he's warning them about. So if you'll recall that in the very beginning, when God wanted his human family to live with him in a perfect world, that means his human family here on planet Earth, he created Adam and Eve. Now, prior to that, we know that God is beyond time, space, and time and space and matter, all right? So if, if time, space, and matter is to be created, which is what we have around us, then the God who creates it has to be outside of it. And so God's outside of all those things. He creates it. And so prior to creating earth and other planets, uh, he created heavenly beings, what the the Bible calls heavenly hosts, angelic beings, all right? So angels are created beings. They're not humans who became angels. They're created beings. We don't know how many angels were created. The Bible just says myriads upon myriads upon myriads, however many that is. And so God created that angelic beings, kind of his heavenly host, his heavenly council, uh, who were kind of the administrators of what is going on in the invisible, unseen world. And so they were kind of the administrators of that. And so we know from Scripture that one of the angels rose up and rebelled against God and took a third of the angels who sided with him. So he was, he, he was um, Lucifer, the son of the morning star, um, but now he's become Satan and many other names. So Satan, his, these angelic beings, are cast out of, of the heavenlies uh, and down to earth, all right? So, so God is, is wanting to have not only a heavenly host family, but he's wanting to ha- also have an earthly family. Now, this is real important because everything that happens here on earth is a display of what's going on in the unseen, invisible realm begins to get played out here in the visible and physical realm. So God creates Adam and Eve to be a part of his family. And he gave them instructions. Uh, So God, this this unseen world that is ruled by God, unseen and seen, is known as the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God refers to the rule and the realm of God, the realm of God being a physical space. So the heavenlies... Physical space, so here on earth, physical, in other words, the kingdom of God is not something that is awaiting us when we die and move on from this world. The kingdom of God is here now. So when Jesus came to the earth, he says, behold, the kingdom of God, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. 
Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. Uh, it, it is here, the rule and the realm of God. And so Eden was um, a place, a realm. It was God's kingdom here on earth. So Ezekiel the prophet called the Garden of Eden, the Garden of God, and therefore this is where God was going to conduct his business. And so he creates Adam and Eve and places them in the realm of his kingdom in Eden. And God's goal was that they would be the administrators of this kingdom here on earth. And so uh, Genesis 1.28 says this, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so they would serve God as his administrators over his creation. And so it was humanity's job to oversee God's creation and to continually extend Eden beyond its boundaries across the entire globe of the world. And the way they were going to do that was by procreation, right? They're going to have children, procreate, and then the, you know, God's kingdom is expanding, expanding, expanding until it envelops the entire globe. That was God's intention. But as you know, um, that didn't happen, right? Because Adam and Eve uh, chose to rebel against God because there was another entity who was on planet Earth, and certainly that was Satan, and he knew that in order to stop God's global mission here on earth, which where he had been bound to, in other words, God put Adam and Eve right in his backyard and uh, for, uh, to display what God could do through someone created lower than the angels, but yet fully submitted to him. And so uh, Adam and Eve, they sinned, and you know the end result of that, everything got thrown into a, into a fr frenzy. And so, um, but God loving humanity, he entered into the realm again of Adam and Eve and says, you know what, I'm going to provide forgiveness. And he talked about a Savior who would come into the world and bring salvation for sinners such as us, such as Adam and Eve, which explains why the Bible uses certain terms when it describes kingdom citizens. Terms like, we are sons and daughters of God. We are children of God. We are adopted into God's family. We are heirs of God's kingdom. We are partakers in his divine nature, and we will one day eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. We will rule the nations with Christ. And so we move forward through this life back to Eden when heaven will return to earth. For example, so the Bible says that in the end, that God's going to destroy the present heavens and earth, right? He's going to refine it by fire. And then he's recreate, and then the heavenly Jerusalem will come down and be the capital city of planet earth. Here's my, here's my trying to get you to see is that, okay, so earth, you're in God's kingdom through Christ here on earth. You're a citizen of kingdom. You're an heir to the kingdom. You're an heir to the throne uh, through Christ because you're in Christ. He is in you. And so one day, this earth is going to be renewed, and then Jerusalem comes down as the heavenly city. And so we are, God, God has restored Everything that he originally intended for Eden when it was first created, only what is absent is a tempter and sin, right? So we're going to be a part of planet Earth throughout all of eternity. So sometimes when we get the concept of heaven, it's like, oh, we leave Earth, we're going to be gone from Earth for all of eternity in a totally different place. No, 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 no. You will for a while, but God brings it all back here to planet earth. And so God foreknew 
obviously that Adam and Eve would fall. That wasn't a surprise to him. But foreknowledge does not mean that it's predestined. Right? In other words, God knows a lot of things because he's outside of time, space, and matter. But it doesn't mean that he's predestined it to happen. God didn't create evil. But because he gave his angelic beings and human beings the freedom to choose, he certainly created the potential for evil because we may not choose wisely, which is exactly what happened. For Satan, pride rose up within him. For we, humanity, the tempter was from the outside taunting them to move away from God. And so in the meantime, in the meantime, God provided a pathway by which we can enter back into relationship with him because sin always separates so that when you gave your life to Christ, you trusted him alone for salvation. You were placed into Christ. He was placed into you. You became transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's beloved son because here on planet earth, there are rival kingdoms going on. There's the kingdom that, that Satan still oversees, and then there's the kingdom of God. We have been transferred to the kingdom of God, to another realm, to another place. It is a virtual kingdom, although we do not see it physically, but it is there. We are part of it. And so the New Testament church, the purpose for the New Testament local church is to be a representative of the kingdom of God. We are to bring the resources of God's kingdom from heaven to bear on earth. That's our calling. That's exactly what Jesus demonstrated through his life when he chose to set aside his God card and live his life as a human. He showed us what it means to live under the Holy Spirit and thus utilizing kingdom resources for kingdom earth, from heaven to earth. That's what he taught us to pray. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so Jesus left that to the church. So when Jesus ascended back into heaven, and you read through the book of Acts, the early church, that's exactly what they did. They began living the life of Jesus by, watch this, by loving God. Remember Jesus said the greatest commandment, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and to love your neighbor yourself. They loved God. They loved one another in community. And they took that love for one another out onto the streets. And they began loving other people and ministering and meeting the needs of humanity around them. That's exactly what our calling is. It is that we, my, my call is to help you and myself to just, man, we just want to love God more and Learn how to love one another. And the reason why the local church is so important, because I hear people all the time, well, well, you know, I love Jesus, I love all that things, but I, you know, I don't have anything, I don't have anything to do with the church. You cannot be in fellowship with God outside the local church. And I'm gonna tell you multiple reasons why. Number one, you can't serve the body of Christ while outside the walls of the church. 58 times there are one another's that are described in the New Testament, how we are to minister to one another and carry one another's burdens. All of those one another's take place in the context of the local church. God created us for community. We need one another. You cannot exercise your spiritual giftedness in ministering to the body of Christ when you're not in the body of Christ. And you're not giving. I'll guarantee you, you're not giving your money anywhere in order to move forward the kingdom of God. So those are just three reasons out of many reasons why the local church is necessary and why you need to be a part of one. Because we learn to love one another, right? Do you know that it gets messy in a church? The Bible calls a church a church family. 
How many of you live in a family, right? I don't know about your family, an extended family, but in my side of the tracks, there's a lot of dysfunction, right? A lot of dysfunction, and the same thing is true in local churches. So here's, here's the deal, is that we, we come to faith in Christ, we start walking in, in our relationship with Jesus, he begin, God begins to strip away from us everything that does not look like Jesus. We've been conformed, we're being conformed to the image of Christ so that we learn how to love like Jesus, and we love each other like Jesus, and we take that love and let it spill out over the church walls into the streets so that we can help others find their way into the kingdom of God. It is so, so essential that we understand the importance and the higher calling of the local church. And so the Bible speaks of the kingdom as a realm, a place, a reality, not as time. That's why Jesus says, if you want to enter into the kingdom, you must be born of water and spirit. In other words, you must have a physical birth and you must have a spiritual birth if you're going to enter into the kingdom. The gateway is the gateway of salvation. That's how you move into the realm of God's kingdom. And it's through his son only, Jesus Christ, which is why Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes unto the Father except by me. Now, here's, here's where this gets really important. Because we are kingdom citizens, uh, we have been called to dwell in a new dimension. And that new dimension offers us things that those outside of the kingdom do not have access to. Right? A part of the new dimension is living in faith. Faith is one of the strongest and most consistent gateways in God's kingdom. And as we partner with the word of God and the Lord of lords and the king of kings in faith, we crack open the realm for the miraculous. All right? So when God wants to do the miraculous, when God wants to show signs and wonders, when God wants to bring healing and deliverance, when God wants to do those things and bring your resources from heaven to bear on the earthly realm in which we live, only those who are kingdom citizens through faith have access to what God is offering from the kingdom that is invisible and unseen to be brought to bear here in the visible and the seen realm. Faith simply is trusting God with our lives. I am surrendering everything over to him. I am trusting him in all things. Faith and trust are two sides of the same coin. You can't have, it's hard for you, you can have faith in something without trusting it, all right? Trust is really where the rubber meets the road. I only trust people that I, that I you know, I have some confidence in, right? So somebody come up to me, you know, you've heard the illustration, a guy runs a string across the, uh, you know, from one skyscraper to another in downtown New York, and he's got a wheelbarrow and says, you know, he's a tightrope walker and says, do you believe I can walk across the, oh yeah, I think you, I have faith you can make it to the other side. Great, get in the wheelbarrow. Now it's a whole different ball game. The same thing is true in salvation. A lot of people say, yeah, I believe in Jesus, I, I believe Jesus existed, and I have faith that he, he came and did all this, that, and the other. But the question is, are you trusting him? We can have faith that God can do a lot of things, and we can read our Bibles all of our lives and talk it where we read about God's signs and his wonders and his miracles, and we think to ourselves, but God could never do that through me. Absolutely false. You have been exposed now, open to the realm of God's resources, and it's exercised through faith. We have acts of obedience. When the Lord stirs our hearts to action, we move, and the kingdom results are unlocked. We have angelic assistance. 
We'll talk about this in another series, but listen, God has unlocked the angelic realm in order to help us as a church, as believers, to move forward the kingdom of God in ways that we cannot do or cannot see or can't even really don't understand unless we see it through the eyes of faith. You remember when Elijah was, uh, you know, there was an army that was bearing down on him and his servant was standing beside him. He's quaking in his boots. He says, Elijah, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? What are we going to do? Elijah opened up a prayer and said, God, show my servant through the eyes of faith what's out there. And all of a sudden he saw all the angels, the angelic armies that were posted all around. They were going to take care of this army that was bearing down upon them. Listen, there are angelic hosts all around us. We have been here on Wednesday nights before in prayer for people, and, and, and some of our folks see angels cascading up and down these aisles. There is an angelic world, and sometimes God gives us a glimpse into that world, but the Bible is filled with Scripture about their role and their responsibility as it pertains to us and the local church. And then there's the gifts of the Spirit, right, including words of wisdom and knowledge and miracles and healing and faith and and, and multiple gifts that God's given to us. A spiritual gift is a supernatural endowment that enables you to do what you could not do on your own. It is empowered by the Spirit of God, and it moves forward by the Spirit of God. So these are just some of the gateways that God has opened us up to us because we are kingdom citizens. And so when Jesus addressed these churches, he said to the church at Ephesus, hey guys, do not, do not make your relationship with Jesus secondary. You're doing a lot of great things out there, but don't put Jesus on the back burner. You need him at the center of your life. God designed you for Christ to be at the center of your life in the person of the Holy Spirit because you cannot operate within the realm of the kingdom effectively apart from the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. That's why Jesus said to his own disciples, do not even attempt to go into exercising the kingdom realm until first you haven't been endowed, indwelt by, empowered by, anointed by the Holy Spirit. And that's what they did in the upper room, awaiting the Holy Spirit of God. Because if the things we do for God aren't fueled by the time we spend with God, we will begin to act like we're God, and we're not. You can do a lot of things in the strength of your flesh without any help from God at all. God, listen, God supernaturally can do more in five seconds than you can do in 50 years if he so desires. And then the church is Smyrna. He says, man, God, you, you guys, you're, you're, love, you're loving so much, you're willing to lay your lives down for the sake of Christ. And so the, this is how, you know, the world's going to know that we are his disciples, right? And what Jesus said, the world will know you're my disciples by your love for one another. And their love for one another spilled out into the streets, and they were willing to lay down their life even for the sake of others outside of the kingdom because they wanted them to see them come to faith in Jesus and be transferred into his kingdom And then the Pergamum we looked at last week, he said, man, beware of a compromising life. Beware of a compromising life. It is a downhill slide into corrupt thinking. And the end result is you will live a life with a knockoff Jesus, right? He's just kind of been made into your image so that he bows to your wishes and to your commands and to your desires and will. So here we come to the church at Thyatira. And basically the bottom line is this, this church became a church of tolerance instead of faith. God wanted them to walk in faith 
and, and to, to dwell in faith and walk in faith and exercise faith, but instead they started that way and they were doing some things, but then all of a sudden something creeped into their midst that caused them to become tolerant of everything around them that brought them to a screeching halt. Now, the town of Thyatira is modern day Tur- in modern-day Turkey. This particular city was the, si- the smallest of all seven cities, but it receives the longest letter of the seven cities. And Thyatira was a military town as well as a commercial center with a lot of trade guilds, and this is very important. And so they were makers of metal and leather and, and purple dye. And as you know, purple dye was used uh, in clothing for royalty, um, we read in the book of Acts, for example, Lydia was a seller of purple dye, purple clothing. And so because of the trade guilds, if you were a part of a trade guild, the deal was this, is that the trade guilds were driven by the worship of many different gods. And so a part of that trade guild is that you would offer sacrifices to these gods and so then you, you, the, the, the offering was made to the gods, the food, and, and then you would eat the food that was offered to these gods, and, and temple prostitution was very much a part of, and so it was very much a party, eat, drink, and sleep together was the normal rhythm of the trade guilds that were happening in the city of Thyatira. Now you take Christians who are brand new believers in Christ, and some of them are more aged than others in their walk with Jesus, and they're in the middle of this town that was just inundated with trade guilds, and everyone was a part of one. If you're going to do business in this town, you had to be a part of the trade guild. It was like the unions of their day. And there were certain responsibilities if you were a part of that union. And uh, so a part of putting, you know, giving your union dues wasn't giving money. It was offering sacrifices. It was participation in all of the rituals that were attached to the guild. The city was also known for occult and demonic worship. And so there was a very famous temple in the city where uh, fortune tellers and sorcerers presided, where you could go and, and have your fortune told and all kinds of things that went on. So here, are, here is what Jesus says to this church. Now, you and I, we say, well, you know, Greg, we don't have these kind of trade guilds when we do these kind of things, you know, and there's, there's none of that going on. But there's a great deal of overlap, as we're going to find out as Jesus unfolds this letter. So the very first thing he, he does is he calls them uh, with a guiding faith. I want, I want to call a guiding faith. You'll notice that in chapter 2 and verse 18, for the first time, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of God. Up to this point, is referred to himself as the Son of Man which was a very uh, popular title of Jesus throughout his earthly ministry. And so the Son of Man speaks of Jesus as Savior, one of humility and sympathy and comfort and care and counseling. And so it's like he's the great high priest who comes alongside of us in our time of need and sympathizes with our weaknesses. So when Jesus is introduced as the Son of God, all of a sudden there is a major shift. To every church, Jesus revealed himself in a different manner. Up to this point, he's kind of like given them uh, kind of like um, salty, sweet kind of introductions. But now all of a sudden, he says, the Son of God with eyes, and you'll read this in Revelation 1, eyes like like blazing fire and feet that are burnished bronze. 
In other words, um, Jesus says, there's not many gods that we need to deal with. There's only one true God, and I'm going to lay this on the line for you. Again, it's why Jesus says, even to the world in which we live, there are not many pathways to God. There's not many pathways to the Father. There's only one path. I'm it. I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one's going to enter into heaven. No one's going to be born into God's kingdom apart from Jesus Christ. He's the only solution God has given to humanity's sin problem. And so now he comes and he introduces himself not as the Lamb of God, but now he's introducing himself as the Lion of Judah. He's saying to the church, there are certain things that are going on inside of your church for which I'm bringing judgment against it. And so I'm not going to sugarcoat this. My eyes are like blazing fire. That means they're penetrating. Uh, everything yields before it. it. It sweeps all away all obstructions. In other words, Jesus Jesus is searching the inner, the inner recesses of their heart. I know what's going on in your heart. I know what's going on with your motives. I know why you're doing the things you're doing, and it's not good. And his feet are like burnished bronze. Bronze, brass always represents strength and firmness of judgment. Your feet you move with, right? So he's speaking of judgment in action. And the judgment in action um, is kind of like Jesus showed that for example, when he, he was here the first time on planet Earth, remember when he came to the temple and um, they'd taken the court of Gentiles and just turned it into a free-for-all where people were selling animals and all the things for temple sacrifices. What did Jesus do? He kind of assessed the situation, went back, came back the next day with a whip, and he, he did some cleansing, right? He did some judging. Like, my house is to be called a house of prayer. This is the temple for the, this is the court of the Gentiles. You're desecrating the temple, therefore I'm going to cleanse it because my temple is to be pure. One of the things that Jesus says in these letters and the Bible in, says as a whole is that the bride of Christ is to live a life of purity. We're to live a life in alignment with the life of Jesus, right? So we're being conformed to Christ. And so if Jesus sees some things in our lives that are keeping that from happening, then he's going to remove them. Why would he do that? Because he, he understands that the end result, if he doesn't, is that you're going to have a knockoff Jesus, you're going to put him on the back burner of your life, and you're going to become Lord of your own life, right? So Jesus is going after sins that I call refined sins. These are sins that people can commit, but re, re, retain their positions, you know, as pastors or deacons or Sunday school teachers or Christian workers or whatever. Um, for example, if I came to this church next Sunday and said, I want you to know, I've left my wife and I'm leaving for her for another woman, um, deal with it, right? So you would fire me. Right? You say, you know, you're, you're no longer worthy of, of being our pastor. This is not what the Word of God teaches. You're violating God's Word. You need to go back and reconcile with your wife. And I say, I'm not doing it. And so I just go my, my, my own way. But what if, what if I don't do that? I, I don't physically do that with my wife. But um, in my heart, in my heart, there's this, this, like, this unbridled lust for other women and here's what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. If I have lust in my heart for other women, I've already committed adultery in my heart. Now, you haven't seen it physically, right? It's in here. You don't know about it. I can hide it from you. 
You, you will never know about those things, but Jesus does. He's, he's got eyes that are blazing, he, and he's going to bring judgment. He's gonna, in other words, he, Jesus wants to cut that out of my heart so that I remain you know, a, a, as pure as I can in walking with him as a representative of his kingdom because I want to be like Christ, right? I want to be like Jesus in my heart. I want to be like Jesus in my character. I want to be like Jesus in my mind, in my life. And so he's going to target those things, what I call refined sins. They can think, refined sins would be things like lying and unforgiveness and pride and ingratitude and anger, lust, greed, arrogance, jealousy, unloving attitude, boasting. The list goes on and on, and I can look at you, and I never see those things in you. But he does. But I can think you're just, you know, a fine, upstanding follower of Jesus and never know these things are going on inside of your head and your heart. Christ does. And he's going to tag this church because they're tolerating something. They're tolerating a teaching that is moving them in the wrong direction. And so Jesus came to guide their faith. And how he does that, he says, man, I'm, I'm coming and I'm going to tell you what, I'm going, to, I'm going to expose this. And let's see what you do about it when I've, when I've exposed it. Now, he may never expose my sin to you, but if he's exposed it to me, the question is, what am I going to do about it? Am I going to justify it, rationalize it, just keep on living in it? That's my choice. But if I'm truly a follower of Jesus Christ, he says, I'm going to bring some discipline because we've got to get that cut out of there because it is not going to be good in the end. Number two, we are committed we are committed to grow in our faith. He goes on again in verse um, 19. He says, man, I know your deeds. Man, you're doing some great stuff, right? You love you, you're, in your faith and your service and your perseverance. I mean, these are some great things that are happening. They're growing and they're maturing in, in certain ways in their lives. And so this is what should happen, right? If you, if, if you are a follower of Jesus, your life ought to be steadily growing and maturing and becoming more and more like Jesus. You know, I have three grandchildren. So the oldest one, Ava, she is over three years old, and like a little tiny, petite little girl. She don't weigh, I don't know, maybe 28 pounds now. She's short. Her brother, who's a year old, already outweighs her and is bigger than she is. And my other grandson, Cooper, who's two and a half, he's way bigger than she is and weighs way more and so what, what happened is, what, what did my daughter and son-in-law do? They, they thought, well, why is she not growing properly? So they took her to the doctor to find out, is this normal? Is, is this okay? Is, is she like so far behind? Why, why is this happening? And they assured her, you know, just hang in there. She's, she's going to grow. She's going to get bigger. She's probably just always going to be very small and petite. Well, the same thing is true spiritually. If you're not growing and you're not maturing in your faith, I mean, I can't, I don't pick you up and take you to a physical doctor, right? So I take you to Dr. Jesus and say, look, Lord, what's going on in their life? What's keeping them from growing? What's keeping them from maturing? Something's going on inside of you that's keeping that from happening. And so God wants to address those things. And he, but he does it in an affirming way. He says, man, I see the good things that are going on in your life. And I see the purity of, of what's happening in your heart and your motives. But there are some few things over here that are really stunting your growth that are really keeping you from maturing and walking in faith, let's work on these things. So that's a process of what the Bible calls sanctification, right? It is becoming more and more like Jesus. Uh, and so Jesus, if you walk with him, 
If you spend time in God's word, I can assure you the Holy Spirit is going to speak to you about issues in your life, in your heart, in your motives that are hindering your spiritual growth that he wants to deal with. And that's, that's what he does with this church. But then he gets to the challenge, and he challenges them because they need to guard their faith. And so, um, you know, what happened is in this situation, and I'm going to give you the Wikipedia version of Jezebel, okay? Jezebel is a name that comes up in the Old Testament. She was the queen to King Ahab. Jezebel was a very ruthless woman. She brought Baal worship into the realm of the nation of Israel. And in Baal worship, a lot of terrible things went on. You know, children were sacrificed sometimes, and there's just a lot of corruption, a lot of sexual immorality, a lot of idol worship, a lot of offering food to idols and all this stuff. And so she brought that and infiltrated it into the nation because her husband, King Ahab, didn't have enough backbone to stand up against her, and so the nation began to tolerate it. And when you tolerate something long enough, it becomes a part of you. And so it became a natural part of Israel's fabric. And God said, "Mm -mm, we're going to cut this out, and I'm going to surgically remove it, and, and that's exactly what he did. So here we have a woman in this church. Now, Jezebel is probably not her name, Nobody would have named their, their daughter Jezebel because it was a very, you know, negative name. But it's representative of someone who's doing something, who's trying to build tolerance for something that is outside the realm of God's word. Now, um, this is where sometimes people get a little wigged out. Notice she's called a prophetess. Um, there were many uh, women who were called prophetesses in, in Scripture. Jesus' beef is not that she's a woman. That's not his beef. His beef is that she's teaching something that is absolutely contradictory to God's word. And so a prophetess is a prophet is someone who speaks into something unseen because they see it, or a prophet can be someone who sees something that has been overlooked and goes and, and, goes and says, look, we need to pay attention to this. And the problem here is she's teaching something. It's what is called a philosophical dualism. What that simply means is this. For example, when I came to faith in Christ, I, I don't try to hide anything. I've been very open about my life. You know, I had a lot of vices, drugs, alcohol, uh, pornography, all those kinds of things that were introduced to me very early on in life. And so when I got saved, guess what? I didn't get saved on Sunday and get up on Monday and all that stuff was gone, Right? And so what Jesus wanted to do was to start cutting that stuff out of my life, out of my heart, because he knew it was detrimental to my life and and to my future. And so what Jezebel would have said is, oh, no, 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 you don't understand. What you do in the body, that's just bodily stuff. What you need to be concerned about is with the spirit, those are two separate entities. They are dual and so it doesn't, you can keep doing that stuff in your body. It doesn't matter as long as you keep working on the spirit. They can, they can coincide together. In other words, I can have a foot in the world and a foot in the kingdom and be okay. And God says, oh, no, 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 you can't. And so she was seeking and had drugged many people in the church into the realm of diving into offering food to idols sexual immorality, all the things for which the scripture 
clearly speaks to and speaks about. And so he goes on to say, listen, I'm, I'm gonna, I've, I've, I've called her to repentance. She won't repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Again, those are the, those are the ones who are adhering to her teaching. God is saying, this is outside the kingdom. This is not kingdom teaching. This is not kingdom doctrine or theology. Um, and so he says, I will strike the children. He's not referring to the second death, uh, his eternal death or separation. He's talking about the consequences of the choices that they are making. For example, in James chapter 1, James says that when a desire is conceived, it lives and gives birth to sin. Sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. All sin leads to death, death of relationships, death of a conscience, death of uh, something dies within us. And so think about um, all of the diseases that have been passed around throughout human history just because of sex outside of marriage. Immorality always causes catastrophic conditions, right? So God, whenever Jesus was asked about sexual things or marriage, he always said the same thing. Here's God's original design. Anything outside of God's original design is sin. Sin always leads to brokenness. Brokenness always leads to coping mechanisms. And the answer to your problem is always the same. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Unless God refines your heart and changes your heart, you can push all the willpower you want, but you're going to keep going back to these coping mechanisms, these methods of self-medication because of the brokenness that is inside of you. And so we think that, you know, uh, back when I grew up in the 60s uh, and 70s, you know, it was the time of, you know, drugs and, and rock and roll and sex. That's, that's, that was our motto, and we were against everything, right? We were against any kind of, any kind of authority over us. Uh, because, you know, we had it all together. And so Jesus says, look, th this is not working, and it will not work. This is not what I've called my church to be or my church to do. I've called you to be kingdom citizens and representatives of me because I have a better way. I have a way to heal the brokenness of humanity so they no longer are dependent upon these coping mechanisms that are absolutely destroying their lives. And so this church had become tolerant to what I call a doctrine of demons. 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verses 1 and 2 says this, The Spirit clearly says that in the latter times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teaching comes through hypocritical liars whose conscience have been seared as with a hot iron. That's not what I said. This is what God said. So I spelled out a few of those doctrines of demons for you, all right? Secularism, be open-minded to all things. In other words, secularism tells us that if God exists, he's really irrelevant, and we need not integrate him in the main street of our thought, our life, or our intellectual pursuit. Now, we may occasionally turn to God, you know, when we need him in a time of need, like when somebody dies, then all of a sudden people want God, you know, oh, God, I'm, I, you know, I'm grieving, I'm feeling bad, and I need you, and... And it is amazing that I've never performed a funeral service for anyone who wasn't going to heaven. That's not what the Bible teaches. That people gravitate to God in the time of death because it's outside their realm. 
And so Satan comes along and says, you need to be open-minded. You need to be tolerant of everything and anything. And so secularism gives rise to values that replace the values of the word of God as the standard and the pattern for right and wrong. And yet the Bible says that all scripture has been given to us by God and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correction, training in righteousness. In other words, as a kingdom citizen, this book is my manual for life. It's my manual for my relationships with my wife and children. It's my manual for work. It's my manual for pleasure. It's my manual for play. It's my manual for everything in every aspect of my life and my walk with God because God has given to me his word. It's like God, if God were to like dial up my smartphone and say, hey, this is God, got some words for you, or here they are. Now, sometimes God even goes beyond this and gives you heavenly downloads through his Holy Spirit because he has a very specific message for you. But I have to make the choice. Either I'm just going to be open-minded to everything and anything and tolerate everything as a value, or am I going to narrow myself to my values being directed through the Word of God? Narcissism means to live for self, right? It means everything revolves around me and the claims I am, you know, I, I am the greatest entity in my personal universe, and all that really matters are my rights and my privileges and my happiness and my prosperity, and every decision is filled through, filtered through, how does this affect me? Never about how it affects anybody else, but just how does this affect me, right? So from in the Enlightenment period in the 17th and 18th century, this is where all this all began, which said the highest good has been seen as freely choosing autonomous individuals deciding out of rational self-interest to construct a progressive society. So in other words, anything that feels self-limiting, get rid of it. So if God says, hey, sex outside of marriage is a no-no, Lord, you're limiting my, my desires. You're limiting my freedom. I'm casting that off. I'm going for it. I want to embrace this. By contrast, God says that we are to value him and to give ourselves away for others. Hedonism, life is lives solely for pleasure. It says that life is, uh, you know, it was popularized, obviously, with the Playboy movement back in the 50s and 60s, and, and it claims that there's no limits to seeking pleasure. It promotes every sexual pleasure known to mankind. Unfortunately, it ends up uh, you know, people finding themselves broken, lonely, sad, wasted. And that, listen, this is the enemy's plan, right? He says he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Do you know how many families have been destroyed through sexual sex trafficking, pornography, and affairs alone? Millions. Because we bought into it. Pluralism. There are many right ways to believe live and to believe. There are no absolutes. Whatever works for you, works for you. Whatever works for me, works for me. And so pluralism reduces convictions to convenient opinions. Even Christians get caught up in this. I hear say things like, well, it seems to me, uh, well, it's not for me. I'm glad it works for you. In my opinion, it's amazing how many Christians argue with each other on Facebook over religious matters, and it's always their opinion. If you're going to argue with me about something, give me verse in scripture. Right? If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. But at least show me where it says in the word of God that I'm wrong. Yet the psalmist says, 
that your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. I will hide its words in my heart that I may not sin against you. Materialism, I am by what I possess and happiness is found in what I possess. So my children, spouse, health, church, even God becomes secondary to the ultimate value of accumulating things. You know the motto is, he who dies with the most toys wins. Then the new age, we ourselves can become God's. Here's what I want you to know is that secular values and mindsets have saturated our culture. They are pumped into every commercial you watch, most books that you read, most movies that you view, in the school systems in various different ways, and through the news filters that flood our airways. And so our our minds begin to fly on automatic pilot, usually flying according to somebody else's flight plan that has been programmed into our thought processes. And so the reason why the Word of God is so important to us is because God's Word has to filter out that which is harmful to us, that which is contradictory. And so this is what this church was refusing to do. Some of the people in the church said, hey, we're adhering to her teaching. We, you, we, we like it. We think it's good. We think it's, it's admirable that it's going to help us. And Jesus says, oh, no, 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 no. It's only going to end up in destruction. It's only going to end up in your life being just like, you know, wasted because you've been following these false ways. And so the, this filters into the church, right? You look at these doctrines. They filter into the church, How many Christians have said, I'm divorcing my wife simply because I'm no longer happy? Or Christians who are so eager to accumulate material things that they become too busy for God any longer and and, and their families because they're so deeply in debt and they can't even underwrite the work of the kingdom of God anymore. And so just like the financial peace, this is really what it's all about. It's helping us realign our priorities around the teachings of Christ and what is best for our lives and for the kingdom. And so we can allow these things to infiltrate our minds without even knowing it. Now watch this. And I'm just going to mention this because I'm out of time. But in Psalm 1, just read the first three verses. He contrasts a person who sits in the counsel of God as opposed to a person who does not. And the outcome is there's a vast difference Whether you realize it or not, you can sit in church week after week after week, but what is really the grid system of your thought processes that really drives your life may not be, the grid system may not be based on God's word, but it may be, have some of God's word that is mixed in with a lot of doctrines that come out of the demonic world. And so what God wants to do is start filtering those out. And he says, the way that I filter that out is by you meditating on my word day and night. Getting God's word in your mind. Memorize it. Meditate upon it. We are to take it in, hear it, read it, study it, memorize it. We are to live it out, and we are to pray it back to God, and we are to pass it on to other people. Show me God's word. Here's what Psalmist says. Show show me your friends, and I'll show you your future. I'm not saying you should get rid of all your friends, okay, that are not believers. You you need to stay with them, touch with them. You want to help them find Jesus, right? But if they're infiltrating your mindset and, and they're dragging you into things 
that are contrary to the life of a believer, then we have to address those issues. So number four, he says, we are convinced by a gracious faith. And so what he simply describes in those latter verses, simply this, is, is that the next event on God's calendar is the, called the, the rapture of the church. The church of Jesus Christ will be pulled out of the world. While we're out of the world in the, in, in the heavenlies, we will stand before Jesus at the judgment seat of Christ. Not to determine whether or not you're going to heaven or hell. That was already determined when you gave your life to Christ, right? So you've been assured heaven. But you will be judged for the works that you've done here on earth. How you spent your time, how you spent your money, how you spent your resources, how you utilize your spiritual giftedness. And so there will be rewards either given or lost as a result of your works passing through the refiner's fire. Now watch this. People have the notion that everybody in heaven is going to be on equal footing. That is not what the Bible teaches. Jesus said those who have been found faithful with the little things will be made ruler over much. So at the end of the tribulation, we move from that point in, into the marriage supper of the Lamb. At, while this is going on in heaven, tribulation for seven years on earth, at the end of that tribulation, Jesus is coming back to establish his millennial kingdom here on earth in Jerusalem. Right? He's going to rule and reign on planet earth for a thousand years. Here's what he says here to the overcomers. You're going to rule and reign with me. Jesus is on his throne. His government is going to be established upon the earth. We are going to be the administrators of that government as followers of Jesus. Satan will be incarcerated in the abyss for a specific period of time, and then he will be released at the end of the thousand years. Because during that millennial reign, not everybody's a believer, not everybody's a follower of Jesus. Just because Jesus is on planet earth again doesn't mean everybody's given their life to him. Right? But they will have to follow his government. And so it's going to be a time of prosperity. It's going to be a time where the animal kingdom stops eating each other. And so Isaiah prophesies about this. But at the end of that year, thousand years, Satan is released and he deceives the nations again to side with him to war against Christ. And it's at that moment in time that Jesus soundly defeats him, casts him into the lake of fire where he'll spend eternity. So we as the church of Jesus Christ, are representatives of the kingdom of God. We are ambassadors from another realm in this realm so that we can bring the other realm to bear upon this realm as we move forward the kingdom of God. God wants to display himself. And he says, I will give you the morning star, which means when we rule and reign with Christ, we are displaying his glory for the world to see. You can do that in the here and now. When you represent Jesus, you love Christ we love each other. We let it spill out over our walls. We allow God use, to use us to help those living in darkness to find light, those who are dead spiritually to be resurrected through a relationship with Jesus Christ. And when we do that, we bring honor and glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the way that all unfolds is that God has given to us every single resource needed for us to accomplish his calling upon our lives in our church. Amen?